0: So polish your glasses and clear out your ears It's book 101, so it's time for cheers So call all your friends up, cause this ain't the last Episode of
1: Doctor Who Literature
2: Hello, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, and a warm welcome to Doctor Who Literature to all my new followers on YouTube. The show joined YouTube a couple of weeks ago, and last week's episode, episode 100. The Two Doctors, guest-starring Conrad Westmas and Fraser Gregory and Jason Davis, was my highest-downloaded first-week episode ever. To my YouTube listeners, this is not a video program. This is still an audio podcast, which is being shared on YouTube. Hope you enjoy. The episodes do run on the longer side. If you have any ideas for me about how to do shorter YouTube-only content, Please drop me a line at Doctor Who Literature, that's DRHO Literature at gmail.com. This week, we also wish a very, very happy ninetieth birthday to the eternally young Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor Who. Welcome to episode one hundred and one. This week we are discussing Doctor Who the Gunfighters by Donald Cotton. The January 1986 Target Novelization. Those of you who were at L.I. Who in August of 2023, and those of you who heard my November 2023 bonus episode, Doctor Who 6460, with Sean Lyon from the Gallifrey 1 convention, know that The Gunfighters is high atop my list of greatest Doctor Who stories of all time, weighing in at a lucky number 13 and trust. I try to fit it into the top 10, but there's a lot of competition, so number 13 is where the gunfighters goes. I want to spend two weeks talking about the gunfighters. There's a lot to say about the novelization. Most of that we will cover next week. There's also a lot to say about the TV story and its production and structure and content and context, and why this story was, for many years, considered the worst Doctor Who story of all time, even though I have it as the 13th best story of all time, and apologize once again for not being able to get it higher. Joining me, both this week and next, is Jim Sangster, longtime contributor to the show, performer of the musical ballad that you will hear several times throughout this episode, very good friend of mine, and an expert on Doctor Who in general, We are going to discuss, after the break, the history of Doctor Who's very troubled third production season. The Gunfighters was made in that context, and that context explains why it was the third-to-last pure historical Doctor Who serial made in the 1960s, and why it gets the blame for being the story that killed the historical format pretty much for all time. So... After the break, the episode begins proper with myself and Jim Sangster. After that, I will briefly discuss the beginning of the novelization, and then we'll see you next week for a lot more about the gunfighters, but for now, we have a fully packed show this week, so let's get to it. A Whovian and a Nuvian walk into a TARDIS. And explore every episode of the classic Doctor Who series. Join me, podcaster John S. Drew. And me, writer-editor Jim Beard, as we take apart each story starting from the very beginning in 1963. And join us on our Facebook page and Twitter, where we continue the discussion with you with historical artifacts from British papers of the time. The Doctor's Beard Podcast, released every Saturday around tea time on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you in time and space. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages. What is up? A tremendous Sunday to you, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. This week, I am joined by a series co-producer, and for the next two weeks, my co-host slash guest host, Jim. Say hello to all the people. Yaru! <laughs> <laughs> we are here this week to talk about possibly the most misunderstood and most underappreciated Doctor Who story of all time. Untangling the story is such a monumental task that we are holstering up and we're going to talk about this episode for the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday. Jim, what episode are we discussing?
1: Are you going to do another dump on the Dominators? Poor Fraser won't be able to... St- oh, wait, hold on. I know which one we're doing. Uh, we're, doing the, we're doing the Rootin' Tootin' Gunfighters! Oh my word!
2: <laughs>
1: which it's obligatory to do a really bad accent for.
2: yee Well, People who have been listening to this show for the last two and a half years know that my native accent is a really bad accent. <laughs> I have the same accent and, as, the, as the elevator operator from The Chase.
1: And I'm never afraid to try a bad accent, even in front of the person I'm impersonating.
2: You'll notice the uh, elevator coming up took uh, seven minutes. You want to go down the uh, short way, it'll take you uh, 20 seconds. <laughs> yes, all New Yorkers sound exactly like that. It's actually true. Congratulations, to The Chase. You've cracked the code. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So The Gunfighters is a remarkable episode. It is a literally a musical in the sense that the song propels the story and the characters coordinate their movements in time to the music. So it is literally performance art. It is three parts raucous comedy. And then you get to episode four and it takes a sudden left turn into dark tragedy. It has all the hallmarks of a classic season three Donald Tosh slash. Donald Cotton, joint venture, genially overseen by producer John Wiles. Except it isn't that way. It isn't that way at all. And the Gunfighters was a reluctant holdover from a new production team that hated every element of the story and specifically remade the show so that the Gunfighters would never happen again. So, Jim, I wanted an expert on board to go over this with me and you're the name that came out of my expert Google search. Do we start talking about the gunfighters by talking about the gunfighters, or do we have to go backwards in time with our TARDIS (laughs) to explain how we got to this rather serious point?
1: Well, as regular listeners know, we're very good at doing linear conversations that never go off topic. So I'm going to aim to do (laughs) a very straightforward (laughs) conversation about the gunfighters. That is going to fail in the second sentence. I mean, this was a a commission by Donald Tosh, Um, but it it kind of breaks the laws that have been established by his predecessor. Um, Apparently, um, Dennis Spooner had said to John Lucarotti, you can't do any historical stories set after 1600. Now, I don't know where he got this from, and I don't know whether it's John Lucarotti misremembering, but this is clearly the most recent historical in history they've got. Um, it's written by uh the crazy Donald Cotton, who and, and it's kind of structurally a sequel to his first story, The Mythmakers. As you say, it's it's broadly it's a very broad light entertainment comedy that suddenly becomes hugely tragic in the last episode. The difference here is they've decided to do a musical. Um a lot of people mention Cat Baloo as the influence, but it's a lot more simple than that. This is a remake of uh, this is a doctor who version of the gunfight at the ok corral which also has a song in that runs all the way through the thing um a bit like high noon i mean there's a lot of um westerns that have music running all the way through
2: given that my last name is miller the opening song to high noon about frank miller warms my heart
1: there's um when people complain about marvel movies nowadays dominating the the cinema and i suppose it's because people are not just going to the cinema for entertainment they've got tv they've got you know netflix and all this sort of stuff but when you consider that in the height of the peak of westerns there are something like 120 150 musical westerns in one year so that's a subgenre of a subgenre of a genre um, so it's it's not quite as odd as it might seem at the time or just looking back at it doing a <laughs> a british production company doing a studio bound western and then decided to make it a musical, which seems to have become um, a decision of Rex Tucker. I don't know. It, it, uh, I'm not sure how that's come about. It's all very confusing. But well, here's where I'll go off on a tangent. Basically, you've got um, Donald Tosh and John Wiles, and they've both been given this new job. They're both kind of new in position. And then they find out that Doctor Who is kind of already planned out for something like three months. They're inheriting. A production from the previous season which is verity lambert's last official one but they've also got missions the unknown which is um commissioned and planned out well before they get there there's a bit of a gap because the next thing they've got is the daleks master plan the massive 12-part epic which has already been planned out and is being co-written by um, donald tosh's predecessor so they've only got this little four-week gap which they end up filling with um the myth makers and then they've got three months to kind of clean up somebody else's mess and try to make a success of it um so it's quite a while before we get their vision of, of how they see doctor who turning out and that's where you get the massacre as a uh donald tosh going no i want this as our history story i want this particular thing i'm going to reject what john nicarotti wanted then we're going to do a futuristic one uh And then we're going to do Celestial Toymaker and then to the Gunfighters. Um, And it's it's kind of, they've only got those
2: brief four stories to make their mark. So, to summarize, season three, there's two season threes. There's the televised season three, which begins with Galaxy 4 and ends with an extra looking direct into camera at the end of War Machines episode four. However, that's just the television season, which has five holdover weeks from season two and the previous regime. We're talking primarily about production season three, which goes from myth makers through the smugglers. You have two named producers. You have two named story editors. You almost have two named doctors. And you have either, I'm holding up my hands to the camera, but because Smudge is blocking me, Jim can't see them. You have either six or seven companions throughout production season three, depending on whether or not you count Gene Marsh playing Sarah Kingdom as a companion, because she was only in the one story. So you have tremendous chaos. And the fact is, the first producer of the season, the production block, John Wiles, and the first story editor of the production block, Donald Tosh, actually began with a five-part story that was opening the broadcast season, Galaxy 4, Episodes 1 through 4, and Mission to the Unknown, which has the same director and some of the same cast as Galaxy 4. And they were trailing, and they decided to get rid of a companion during the making of Galaxy 4, only they didn't tell that companion until she got the scripts for her next and (laughs) turns out final story. And why? We'll start off with this. If Galaxy 4 was commissioned by Verity Lambert and Dennis Spooner on their way out the door. Why is it five weeks instead of four? And why does the fifth week of Galaxy 4 feature Daleks and not Rills and Drops?
1: Well, again, you can desperately try to pull me into this idea of it being a production block that is so neat and tidy. It doesn't work like that. Um, I mean, first of all, the, the extra Dalek episode, which they were originally working to the plan, Verity Lambert and Dennis Spooner are working to the plan of an, another six-part Dalek story. And they came up with the idea of, um, we've been given this extra episode by Sydney Newman. Because at the end of the first production block, uh, so that's the production block for series one, but transmitted as the, the broadcast season two, we've got Planet of Giants, which lost an episode. So Sydney Newman gives them an episode back. And they think, well, why don't we use that for two reasons? Firstly, we need to give the regular cast a break. And at the point they're planning this, they're aware that William Russell might be leaving. They don't know what Jacqueline Hill's plans are. They don't know what the future's going to look like. But they've got a structural idea that they need the cast to have a break. So why not bring the Daleks back because they're really big and popular and maybe people won't notice the regular cast aren't there. Then they'll have another story and then they can do this big six-part Dalek story. Then Hugh Weldon, who's the controller of BBC Television at the time, uh, and Kenneth Adam, who's the director of television, both support the idea that this Dalek story should become a massive, a much bigger thing, and they're suggesting 13 episodes. So the way they fudge it is they say, well, we've got this one episode, which is already planning to a Dalek one. Let's make the bigger story a 12-part story. And that's already in place by the time Donald Tosh and John Wells turn up. you've also got because of this confusion about not knowing where the companions are going to be uh, verity lambert has had to negotiate with donald wilson who is the head of serials to allow dennis spooner to write um the time meddler because by the time they've got the new cast in place the script editor will be in the best position to write the first script so he's doing this he's also agreed to work with terry nation to write this 12-part dalek story So even though he officially leaves of the end of spring 65, Dennis Spooner is still hovering around like Banquo's ghost until Christmas. (laughs) Um, And then in in January 66, Donald Tosh is gone. And a few weeks later, John Wiles is gone. So (laughs) when we think about the producers of season three, you've still got to factor in that Dennis Spooner is the script editor In some form, for well into half of it.
2: And we can go back even further because Planet of Giants was planned to be the very first Doctor Who story ever in the summer of 1963, ended up being pushed back. The producer before Verity Lambert was Rex Tucker, who comes back to direct The Gunfighters towards (sighs) the end of season three. So even though we're talking about a distinct run of nine stories, it really goes all the way back to 1963 and the origins. Of Doctor Who. So, The Myth Makers is the first story of the new production block. Everybody's had a four-week vacation. Maureen O'Brien loves the show. Comes back, ready to go. Gets the scripts for Myth Makers, and she goes, "Wait, wait a minute! The sheriff dies in this one." <laughs>
0: Oh, God, oh dear, my dear child! Oh, how lovely to see you. Where have you been all this time? Hmm? And where's Stephen? Don't hmm? I've got to talk to you. Oh, now one thing at a time, child. Where's the young man? Katharina! Katerina, hmm? this is the doctor. Now go and find the man you call Diomede. He's hiding amongst those pillars over there. You're from the other place. But who is this child? Now pull yourself together. We've got to go. To mm-hmm. then go and find Diomede. He will be there. Bring him to my chamber. We must go and find no, him. No, don't, don't, don't! Quickly, the I've my God! The boy, the boy! Open the door and listen to me, oh, please. Yes, but just yes, be patient, Stephen.
2: Stephen is safe. Just yes, to me away. Please, please. please. come and <laughs> come to talk to you. Oh. Why is Maureen O'Brien, one of the most vibrant and lovable companions of the 1960s, fired after a four-week break, which she could have used to find a job, if someone had bothered to say, by the way, we're not renewing your contract? What happens here?
1: (laughs) One of the other things we've got to take into account is the fact that John Wiles is not a fan of the show, even while he's working on it. And Donald Tosh is a great showman. He's a great storyteller. But the pair of them are very unreliable narrators when it comes to what happened at this point. So it's about piecing together the the facts. And what we can gather is John Wiles and William Hartnell do not get on from the very beginning. And Hartnell is resentful of the fact that the regular cast have now all gone. Verity Lambert is leaving. David Whittaker's gone and he's feeling insecure because he's got these new people coming in all around him and it's very unsettling for him. So he starts throwing a few tantrums just to assert himself. And John Wiles has this screaming fit with the whole cast about how they behave on on productions. And he's trying to assert his authority. And then John Wiles is summoned to Sydney Newman's office and he's told your job is to appease William Hartnell and that will make me happy. And if you can do something that makes yourself happy, that's a bonus. That's the hierarchy here. <laughs> so John Wiles and Donald Tosh, firstly, they start conspiring to go, well, can we show them that we can make this show without William Hartnell? <laughs> so they start coming up with all these ideas to get rid of him in, in various scripts towards the end of the season. But the second thing is, it's very clear at this point, they can't sack William Hartnell. But Maureen O'Brien perhaps emboldened by William Hartnell, is getting very vocal about her own dissatisfaction. So they can't get rid of William Hartnell, but they can get rid of her. And her contract is due to expire, uh, and I think it's extended to cover the Mythmakers, and then that's that. Also, she's um, one of many, we're going to be talking about this in a future episode, but she's one of many um, significant contributors to Doctor Who from Liverpool, which comes with a a kind of, um, I'll use the phrase, bolshiness of its own. (laughs) Um, We all have this kind of chip on our shoulder, um, standing up for ourselves, standing up to authority. uh, And it always backfires. (laughs) So she's complaining about the scripts and then she goes on holiday and comes back to find out she's been sacked. And then she thinks, okay, I'll go back to the theater.
2: This reminds me a lot of the great New York actor, Harvey Keitel who was hired by Stanley Kubrick to fly to England and take part in the seven-year nightmare that is the production of Eyes Wide Shut. And Harvey Keitel is playing Tom Cruise's character's doctor friend who belongs to this weird sex cult. And Harvey Keitel has this big dramatic scene at the end of the movie where he pulls Tom Cruise into his New York City penthouse apartment and is telling him what's happening. After take 70 of this, Harvey Keitel goes off on the director saying, why do we need to do 70 takes? I have been an actor for 35 years. I don't need to put up with this. Somebody asked him in 2023, a British interviewer asks him, what was the problem with Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut? Well, he was a genius. Um, Mr.
0: Kubrick did some things I objected to. I didn't like. I thought they were disrespectful, and I won't be disrespected by him or anybody. And if any actor can help it, they should help it. Yeah. You don't want to get fired. No. But I was. Is that the Brooklyn in you, do you think?
2: It's the sense of worth in me. And yeah. I'm thinking, no, Harvey, couldn't it be both? Couldn't it be both the self-worth and the Brooklyn in you? So I'm seeing a lot of similarities between Brooklyn and Liverpool, myself, and Harvey Keitel and Maureen O'Brien. There is
1: this um, sense of Liverpool... Um, as thinking of itself as its own fiefdom. Um, when we talk about a sense of nationalism, Liverpool has always had its back on England. It's looking to the homeland of Ireland and passed it to New York. So again, there is a very similar... I mean, the fact that the Liverpool City Centre is designed in a very similar architectural style to, to New York, which is why it's doubled for New York in so many different movies. You know, when I first moved um, to Manchester, and the first film I saw in a cinema was uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. And there's a lovely scene where he's running through the streets of New York. The as, Brooklyn well, Navy Ma- Yards, yes. Well, he's running through <clears throat> the streets of Manchester as New York, turns a corner, hits the docks of New York, which are now Liverpool. <laughs> and it's like, oh. And like a lot of people who come from Liverpool, I never want to move back, but I sentimentalise it out of all proportion. So that's why I'm very fond of Vicky. I think she's an amazing character. I think Maureen O'Brien was one of the best uh, companion actors, but she just fell foul of somebody wanting to get rid of William Hartnell, not being able to, and thinking, who's next?
2: So we covered the Myth Makers in episode ninety-seven of this program, and I have previously had Ian Potter on the show for a bonus episode. And Ian literally wrote the book on the Myth Makers, not the <laughs> novelization, but the Black Archive. So Myth Makers is a great episode. If you have not listened to episode ninety-seven, go back. If you have not listened to my Ian Potter interview, go back. Jim and I are moving on to the next story, the Daleks' Master Plan. <laughs>
0: a strange signal. Can you not help him? I'm doing the very best I can, my child. <laughs> oh, dear, 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 this is such a worry. This poison seems to be spreading throughout the whole of the system. Yes, we need a special drug. I shall have to land somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. What is that? Well, we're slowing down, my dear. We're going to land in a moment. Can we have reached the place of perfection, so soon? Uh, Well, I rather doubt it, at least. That is, uh, we should be stopping at a lot of places before that. Now, I I, I want you to look after Stephen, if you will, and see that you keep that wound clean.
2: Please? Hmm? (laughs) That's a good girl. Peter Purvis is being kept on. So even though Maureen O'Brien is gone, Stephen Taylor is staying on, and he is going to be the glue that holds most of season three together until, of course, his number comes up. They need to replace him with a new companion, and somebody has the idea. Let's create an ancient Greek handmaiden and have her as the new companion. And by the way, our next story after this one takes place in the 57th segment of time, billions of years in the future. We're gonna put Katarina on a spaceship. Let's give this to Paul Erickson and see how it works out. So obviously it doesn't work out, and they decide to replace Adrian Hill. As soon as she's hired, the very first thing she ends up filming in Doctor Who is her death scene, and they hired Jean Marsh, wonderful actress who'd been in the Crusade a year earlier, to replace her. So Dalek's master plan has three or two, depending on whether or not you count Jean Marsh companions in it, because they cannot figure out how to replace Maureen O'Brien. Terry Nation, meanwhile, goes, I'm just going to call this companion Vicky for the whole of my script. So Vicky is referred to, even though obviously it's not Vicky. And then at the end of Dalek's Master Plan, this is the first attempt to get rid of Liam Hartnell. They cut out all of his dialogue from episode 11 and sidelined him, even though he's there in studio. So Dalek's Master Plan takes three months. There's a Christmas special in the middle. There is a New Year's Day special in the middle. And Mark McManus from Trap One and I did a bonus audio commentary for episode eight of Dalek's Master Plan for New Year's Day 2024. Why is the production of the Daleks master plan such an unholy mess, Jim?
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So firstly, they've just got rid of Maureen O'Brien, right? Um, they've got three months ahead of them where they, they need to put their stamp on the show. And the best way of doing that is to create a new companion. Now, Donald Tosh has with indecent haste forced his mate to write this story about the myth makers, um, they decide a companion from that can be the one we take forward. And then as they're developing the character for the scripts going forward, as you say, the, the characters are still called... I think in some versions, some of the scripts are still called Mike. Steven oh, is still called Mike in right. some of the episodes. So maybe that would be Galaxy 4. But um, so, you, so you've got this parallel universe of Mike and Vicky going into the Dark <laughs> master Plan. Um, so they've, they've committed the idea of getting rid of Vicky. They've got this stopgap companion and she is a companion. But she's a companion who, from the very beginning, they've realized they're going to have to kill her off. And that would be quite dramatic. You can't imagine them killing off Vicky. That would be just too upsetting. It would be traumatic rather than dramatic. But this new one, we've only known her five weeks. And it's sad. But we don't really care <laughs> that yeah. much. you know. So they know that they've got to have a temporary set of other companions just to buy themselves more time so we've got brett vyan and he is a surrogate companion as well he travels with them he travels through um, space with them but for some reason fans don't look at him as a companion because that would be really confusing when it comes to the same actor coming back a few years later so he's not on the list but here's where we're going to do our next bit of myth busting um I was a member of the production team for the Manopticon conventions in the 1990s in Manchester. And at our last one, Manopticon 5, we had Jean Marsh coming to her first ever convention. Oh, wow. And uh, it was brilliant. And she's interviewed by Gary Russell. And Gary Russell starts off by saying, and he set this up because they've had a conversation. He said, so you were one of the first companions to be killed off. And she said, well, no, I wasn't. Because I wasn't a companion. And the room falls silent. And she says, no, I was, a, I was a guest star. They wanted me to be a companion, but I wasn't really interested in that. So I was only ever a guest star. I wasn't contracted as a regular. I was only ever contracted as a guest star. And that's all I ever was. I understand that fans' imaginations have, have got carried away with them. And they've uh, since decided that I, you know, my character was a companion. But at the time... I wasn't. And certainly we've now got the freedom of thinking of Kylie Minogue as a, as a guest companion over the seasonal period or whatever. But Jean Marsh was not a companion. So you can put a line through all of your companion lists and update all of your, um, your, 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 your fan theories. But yeah, Sarah Kingdom was not a companion.
2: I had this um, conversation earlier on the show, um, I think during the Mythmakers episode. It's like people who try and treat Kim Basinger as a Bond girl. No, she was not a Bond girl because she was not in an Eon Cubby Broccoli production. She was in a parody film as a result of a lawsuit settlement with Kevin McClory, which was paid for by Adnan Khashoggi, who gets thanks in the credits to Never Say Never Again. Kim Basinger was in a Bond parody film but is not a Bond girl that is the hill that I will choose to die on (laughs) speaking of die on, Red Vion I recall reading somewhere years ago back when I was still blogging on WordPress and I don't recall exactly where I read it that the violence and the death in episode 4 of Dalek's Master Plan Katarina and Brett and then Sarah Kingdom in episode 12 alienated William Hartnell and is one of the factors that hastened his departure from the show like most stories that i've heard is this strictly accurate or is this a fan myth built on incomplete information
1: i don't know whether it's a fan myth but it's uh it provides a very convenient um excuse for william hartnell's departure that gives him a bit of self respect i think uh, I mean, by the sound of it, you know, they were trying to get rid of him for a long, long time. You know, with all of these different attempts, like fading him out in *Celestial Toymaker, replace, well, recasting him with uh, Frederick Jaeger in *The Savages*, uh, and and ultimately him being told by the next administration we're going to carry on, but without you. And it provides him with a very dignified reason for his departure that isn't just "we don't like working with you." because you're horrible to everyone around you. You're a racist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know All these things that we've heard ac- uh, people ac- accuse him of in subsequent years. I mean, they, there's that famous letter that he wrote to Ian McLachlan, um, which has been quoted in a lot of the different fan books, where he, he said, uh, I left Doctor Who because we did not see eye to eye over the stories and too much evil entered into the spirit of the thing. Doctor Who was always noted and spelled out to me as a children's programme. And I wanted it to stay as such. And it's funny that if you look at uh, season three, there's a lot of the um, review boards where they talk about things like The Myth Makers being a sophisticated comedy that's likely to be over the heads of the children. And the production team keep getting reminded it's a children's program. And the production team have absolutely decided that the one thing they're not doing is a children's program, which is why... The historical, I mean, the idea of getting rid of a story about Eric the Red and instead replacing it with the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. I mean, I, I never studied that history in, in school. And I went to a very posh school with very old-fashioned ideas of what history should be. Um, they seem to be very out of touch with their audience. So I think in that way, William Hartnell was right. But I also think that he was out of step with where TV was going and where, and where the production team wanted to go.
2: So this segues nicely into The Massacre, the next story after Dalek's Master Plan. Episode 12 of Dalek's Master Plan is called The Destruction of Time. At the end of the episode, viewers at the time get the caption, Next episode, War of God, which leads to a very funny observation by Rob Shearman in the first Running Through Carter's volume. The Massacre is the second straight TV story to sideline Doctor Who, the title character of the show. Because Hartnell is written out of most of episode 11 of DNP and then is entirely absent from episodes 2 and 3 of The Massacre, replaced by a tertiary villain who gets less than 100 words of dialogue in the entire story, The Abbot of Amboise.
0: You must come with me. You can always come back here in the morning. Landlord, yes, If an old man arrives asking for the Englishman, tell him he's lodging with the Admiral of Coligny, and will return here in the morning. He certainly shall come. Look, this is very kind of you, but I'm sure he will come. Not now. He must be delayed somewhere. There's nothing we can do tonight. I suppose you're right. He's probably got sidetracked. He often does. All right, thank you. I will accept your offer. Then come. English. I wonder what they're up to. I shall want a full report in the morning on all that happens and that is what happened if it hadn't been for the vicomte de l'orraine the captain would almost certainly have caught her it was pure mischance I'm sure she couldn't have made any sense of what we said Simon Duval has gone to the inn where she escaped and the captain has gone to find an aunt of hers I'm certain that it's only a matter of time in fact one of them may be bringing her back here now Forgive me, Father Abbott, but the missing girl is at the house of Admiral de Coligny. Fetch her tomorrow. Bring her to me.
2: Who wrote the massacre and why is William Hartnell barely in it?
1: Well, it's there in the caption. God wrote it. I don't know I'm you know I'm, I'm already going to hell I'll save you a seat I mean again this is another one where uh Donald Tosh is, is um <laughs> is kind of lumbered with the previous administration you know he's speaking to John the Karate saying oh we'd like you to pitch some ideas and Luke Karate goes um excuse me I've already got a verbal commission from Dennis Spooner I've already been working on a script with Eric the, you know about Eric, Eric the Red and uh, Newfoundland and all that sort of stuff uh, and Donald Tosh is really disappointed because he's not, he's got no interest in that. So he then pushes to have the massacre as as the story that Lucarotti is working on. As many people have said, the authorship of uh, the massacre is is in dispute. Um, both sides have unreliable evidence, and all we can say is it's it's a combination of people's interests and people's talents. So, but you've also got this again this requirement for a contractual. Um, fulfilment with John Licarotti. So he has to write something because he's been given this verbal commitment and they've got this gap. They've also got the realisation that William Hartnell, if he's not in episodes two and three, uh, it might affect his residuals. Donald Tosh felt that the reason why they had to give him this extra character was A, to give him uh, residuals for overseas sales and B, to keep him entertained so he's playing a different character and he can show something off. Because they still want to get rid of him, but they don't want to kick him so hard that no one will ever employ him again. So it's a nice th- theoretically, it's a nice thing to give him an audition piece for his next job.
2: Which in the event he never gets.
1: <coughs> Which in the, well, he, yeah, he gets he gets a panto on an episode of Softly Softly. But apart from that, yeah, that's pretty much it. And you've also got this increasing need to get an additional companion for Stephen to play off. So we get um Anne. But Anne has the same problems as Katerina in that she still won't understand futuristic door locks and she'll have to have Evan explain to her. So then we get the first modern companions since Ian and Barbara
2: in the form of Dodo. And Dodo is unique because they created a companion who did not speak RP and had a very distinct and attractive regional accent, Jim. What accent would that be?
1: <laughs> so if you are, like I was, reading... Uh, the writings of Jeremy Bentham in Doctor Who Weekly and Doctor Who Monthly. You may be forgiven for thinking that she was a cockney, And then when you actually hear the audio of the massacre, at the end of the massacre, she comes in with what is recognisably a broad Mancunian accent. So Jackie Lane is using their own Manchester accent. And they quickly felt, oh no, 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 we're not doing that. Coronation Street does that on the other side. We're not doing that at all. So then she's forced to adopt this much more neutral accent for their first full story, which is a shame because it would have been quite fun. They keep bottling it, bottling it when it comes to accents. I mean, the fact that Maureen O'Brien, I think probably instinctively suppressed her accent. You hear little snatches of it occasionally, but it's um, to get Jackie Lane to come in and she's go, where's your phone? <laughs> it's quite nice, but uh, we're not going to get a companion with a regional accent for, well, we're going to get Jamie doing his generic scottish which again is starts off as highland scottish and then becomes generic bbc scottish we're not going to get someone with a regional accent for quite a while
2: and fraser Hines also gets to speak rp when he is playing a duplicate of himself very briefly towards the end of the faceless ones but that is a story in a production block for another day jamie the first companion to have three different accents playing one character i I should
1: you say um um Non London regional accent, because obviously we've got ben, oh, uh, yes. and ben, and Ben is proper uh, London, probably East End. Um, but uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna. In terms of English accents, it's probably Ace, and even Ace is is almost RP. She's uh, she's West London, but she's that's another story anyway.
2: And of course, uh, Nicola Bryant's accent, which is sometimes British, sometimes Australian, sometimes a version of American, but nobody's ever quite clear where on America she's from until Tales from the TARDIS, where they decide she's from Baltimore, even though I lived in Baltimore for parts of six years, and that is not a native Maryland accent. Uh, There's there's
1: also suggesting that she's making fun of the doctor, so she's joining in by trying to pronounce words like glass, Mm. because she's making fun of him. But yeah, that's, that's way in the future, and also in terms of the books, way in the past
2: so now we come to the ark and for the first time doctor who is one big happy family you just where do you think you're going out out
0: yes i thought i'd get some fresh air somebody opened the door but nobody me? said you could go out they have to then well of course they do dodo you don't know what you might have found out here no gravity poison atmosphere all sorts of things Look, stop prancing around over there. What happens if you get lost? I catch a bus back. A bus? What are you talking about? I mean, just where do you think you are? Ah, bet you thought you caught me, didn't you? Bet you thought I didn't know. Well, I do. You do? Of course I do. What, this place? I mean, you recognize it? What, with all these strange animals and flowers and things? Well, you can't have been here before. Yes, I have. It's just outside London. I came here once with the school. It's called Whipsnake. Just outside London? Look, wait a minute. I mean, (laughs) it can't be. Yes, it is. I'll bet if you go down that path there, you'll come to the American bison and the tea bar.
2: we, We don't even know that we're on Earth. Earth?
0: Earth? Well, it couldn't be anywhere else now, could it?
2: We have our permanent producer, John Wiles. We have our permanent story editor, Donald Tosh. I know this because their names are in the closing credits. And we have a long-lived regular cast of William Hartnell and Peter Purvis and Jackie Lane. The arc is given to a husband and wife script writing team. I know this because it says so right there on the the screen, Paul Erickson and Leslie Scott. Everybody is hunky-dory. Is that what the arc is about, Jim? Um. <laughs> or more likely every single thing that I said was wrong and now you to explain why every single thing I said is entirely incorrect
1: <laughs> I, I am literally today years old when I've got a question mark on Leslie Scott because um, now reading the biog of Paul Erickson who the biog says he's from Cardiff and I've just watched an interview with him from the Panopticon tapes so we were Manopticon and the, the, the original ones was Panopticon Um, and Paul Erickson does not sound Welsh to me he sounds North American and I've not been able to as of now find any evidence for why he sounds North American to me I don't know what happened maybe he was born in Cardiff and moved to North America but his career doesn't seem to have given him opportunity to do that so I don't understand that also there's a question on was Leslie, Leslie Scott his wife was it a pen name for his wife I don't know I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not proud. <laughs> I will admit, I don't know. Because the arc is one of those stories that, you know, you get this thing of, oh, they've done the fake out. You know, it ends and then they come back in the same location, which they don't because they've traveled many light years in the intervening episodes, but it's in the same um, set, even though that set is on a spaceship, which has now traveled uh, into a different location. But it's the first time they have that fake out and it's brilliant. Um. Yeah. We also have the 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 beginning of the evolution of Dodo into she is whatever the script requires it to be. Now, I love Dodo. The, she's playing the part as stipulated by Sidney Newman. We need a kid to get into trouble and make mistakes. And she does that in all of her episodes and she does it fully. I think she gets a hard time because... Fans will will celebrate everything when it's successful, and as soon as anything gets any kind of whiff of lack of success, they'll pile on it. Um, And the way that Dodo's removed um, seems so sudden and so um, cack-handed, really, that people have decided, oh, well, Dodo's clearly terrible, and that's why they got rid of her. She's not. She's better than... No, I'm not going to mention names. Uh, She's better than at least three companions I can think of who follow her.
2: It's just that she's not
1: Vicky. That's the problem. She's not Vicky.
2: I know who you mean. We're not going to name names. I think Jackie Lane is wonderful. And when we talk about the gunfighters proper next week, we are going to celebrate her in in, in very honest and loving style. She is wonderful in the gunfighters. But coming back to the arc, is John Weil still really the producer at this point? Is Donald Tosh really still the producer at this point?
1: Um, They're both... Well, at the time of broadcast, they've gone. Um, The ARC comes out in, uh, covers all of March 66, and they've both gone by the January. Um, But I believe, um, certainly the the ARC, Celestial Toymaker, and the Gunfighters are commissioned by Donald Tosh, because obviously the Gunfighters is um, Donald Cotton again. And the Celestial Toymaker is a whole... I mean, if you're going to do another one of those making-of dramas, you could probably do one about the behind-the-scenes on the Celestial Tome Maker and, and have mm. quite a rare old time, because of all the hands all over it. There are a lot of mucky fingerprints on the scripts for that. Um, but the arc, again, it, it seems to be it seems to go quite well. So <laughs> when I've been watching uh, the interviews and list and reading interviews, they can't really remember anything bad about it. Even the problem with having the elephant. Uh, in, in the film sequences they don't remember anything particularly bad there although I'd imagine it was quite troublesome having all those animals in one set
2: and this was but, Michael Imerson's only story as director even though he does an incredible job and in fact when Howe, Stammers and Walker write the first Doctor Handbook it's the making of this story and Michael Imerson as director that gets a full chapter
1: yeah but it's uh, it's I, I think it looks amazing it's uh, the fact that we've got rid of uh Richard Martin. I'm going to just say it. We've got rid of Richard Martin after the chase, right? Um, And I love Richard Martin. I've met him a couple of times. He's really lovely. He's really nice. But it's funny watching him look at clips and critique it going, oh, well, you've cropped this really badly. And people have to go, no, that's how you shot it at the time. And he refuses to accept that it could have been him. Um, But you start getting... Um, I mean, with D- Douglas Canfield, who has been directing for about a year when he does Dark's Master Plan, but he's got very clear ideas about what he wants to do to the point where he is almost a co writer of the Dark's Master Plan. And you start getting a lot of directors coming in who know how to move a camera around. Let's skip over the Celestial Toymaker, but for a lot <laughs> of the other stories, you've got some beautiful direction. You've got some really good directors coming in. We've got, um, I think Rex Tucker does an amazing job on the gunfighters. I think Christopher Barry, uh, from what we can tell from the telesnaps, looks very very interesting. Michael
2: Ferguson, War Machines. Michael Ferguson,
1: the War Machines. You know, the introduction of the um, overhead um, silhouette caused by the sun behind the figure, which appears in most of his stories from then on. You've got a a really good run of directors on this, and uh, Michael is is definitely leading the pack there.
2: So after the arc comes Celestial Toymaker and I am covering the book and I am having an expert guest for the book episode. I don't want to exhaust all topics there. I think we can agree A, Celestial Toymaker is another attempt to fire William Hartnell. He vanishes in episode one and it's supposed to come back in episode four played by a different artist. Doctor, you
0: vanished! What?
2: Oh, nonsense, child,
0: nonsense. You have? Do you think this is something to do with the refusions? It must be. You're wrong. This is something far more serious.
2: We're in grave danger. This is some form of attack. We have the fact that this went through three different writers, through three different production teams, starting with Brian Hales, moving on through Donald Tosh, ending up with, I believe, Jerry Davis. Who are George and Margaret? And who who is Gerald Savory? Tell us that briefly before I reserve the rest of the conversation to the book episode.
1: Very, very briefly. Gerald Savory is a playwright who then became, he replaced Donald Wilson, who is um, the midwife of Doctor Who. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it's this strange thing where um, Verity Lambert decides she's leaving and Dennis Spooner gets an offer of a job working with Terry Nation on The Baron. And around about the same time, they've committed Doctor Who to making the 12-part special, and Donald Wilson oversees that and then leaves. And so you've got not just William Hartnell being left on his own because his original crew have gone, and even the replacements have gone, but everyone in the BBC seems to be changing. So Gerald Savory is now head of drama. And you've got this strange decision, and I'm I'm sure it's Donald Tosh, because Donald Tosh comes to Doctor Who with all these literary Um, aspirations that uh, John Wiles said, I'd never heard of any of the the people he was referencing. He had all these poets he wanted to bring in and he was bringing all these writers who ended up not being hired because they couldn't do the job. But he decides that it'd be a fun idea to do a tribute to Gerald Savory's characters, George and Margaret. And then Gerald Savory gets um, wind of this and says, absolutely not, (laughs) And it's a failed attempt at sucking up with your boss.
2: Ah, uh, because and, so and Margaret are not characters; they they never appear in their own in their own play.
1: Yeah, and it's it's the idea. It's a bit like Godo. You know, it's uh, they thought it'd be funny to cast them, and he's like,
2: "No, <laughs> no,
1: you're not doing that." Um, and again, it's a bizarre cultural reference to make in a program for kids. Donald Tosh is just in a world of his own there. Um. And then you've also got the hidden extra uh, script writer, which is um, the actor who decides to take the ad lib that they've suggested in the script and decide to drop a racial swear word into it. So um,
2: the actor who went through life with the stage name Campbell singer, and he really should have known better for reasons that I've talked about elsewhere on this show. Yes. Yeah.
1: We've covered that a lot in, in the past and probably will do again, but um do you get the impression that they're just flying by the seat of their pants most of the time? Every single success they've got, they, they mess it up. And um, this is why I think The Gunfighters is an amazing production because what you see on screen is <laughs> probably the best produced thing they that they actually have commissioned and put in, in, in front of a camera. I, I love The Gunfighters. Celestial so yep. Yeah, I think if it ever came back, firstly, we know they'd never be able to release it commercially without that judicious edit. Yes. Um, but also all those people who remembered it at the time as this really spooky, really creepy thing. I think would be bored rigid by the, the cycler and the, um, like a first attempt to at do in the mind robber, but without any of the joy that the mind robber brings in a couple of years time.
2: Oh, I love um, the mind robber to pieces. Cannot wait to get to that book, even though it's quite a way down the line and in a uh, publication order.
1: And you've got an example of a story, which is pretty much carried by the guest actor. In this case, it's Michael Goff. Um, and when he's not on screen, it just feels like a lot of nonsense. And I, I'm saying this as someone who quite likes the Celestial Toymaker, and I am looking forward to seeing the new BBC Studios animation of it. But it just feels like, oh, let's let's throw in a few ideas. We'll pad the job for a few weeks until we can get to the next story.
2: And a lot of the bad reputation that Dodo has, I'm sure, comes from the story. This is Jackie Lane did not write Celestial Toymaker. Jackie Lane did not design her character. Jackie Lane did not show up at the story meeting in the writer's room and say, I've got a great idea. Dodo is gonna destroy every episode by telling the opposition how to beat her, which is gonna result in her death. Jackie Lane had nothing to do with that. It is not Jackie Lane's fault that Dodo comes across as a congenital idiot throughout most of Celestial Toymaker. And because we'll talk about this next week, she is so good in the gunfighters, which is a triumph set design and direction and acting in most instances, and yes, music. So Gunfighters, we'll come back to. We now come to The Savages, which is the next story after Gunfighters, and all of a sudden, Peter Purvis, who's been a rock for the show through all these comings and goings, did he leave voluntarily?
1: I've always had a question mark on that. I mean, I've got a list of you know, the people who um, were forced out and the people who were um, just sacked, and it's a, it's a much bigger list than you'd expect. Even if it's just things like, we're going to pay you off, but remove you from the series a little bit early. Um, there's a surprising number of people who do not leave at the point they actually want. I think Peter Purvis was ready to go. Um, so he, and from, from everything he said, it's like, oh yeah, I've reached the end of my run on this. But also you've got Innes Lloyd, who's come in now as the producer. And he has very strong ideas about what he wants to, to do. And what he wants to do is make the show a lot more contemporary. He wants contemporary companions. And then he wants to start going through the cast of The Power Game, which is a big drama at the time. And he's going to see if he can get as many of the cast of that onto his show to the extent that he will cast the daughter of the star of The Power Game as a companion to, make, to try and sweeten the deal to see if he can get Jack Watling on the show
2: so as a kind is... of
1: semi-regular.
2: So the power game is the Pallisers of the 1960s. Every single person who was in it has to appear on Doctor Who.
1: Pretty much, yeah. In the same way that T uses the Pallisers as his casting book, um, as exemplified by Black Orchid, where pretty much everyone who's got a speaking part in that is from the <laughs> Uh you, You're going to see a lot of people who are going to make an appearances where Innes Lloyd has gone, oh, I, I want to get those, those in the show. you know. But uh, I think Peter Purvis leaves at the right time he leaves in a beautiful way. It's basically he's set up as a king. I love the fact that Peter Purvis often says, I think that he'd become a despot. (laughs) (laughs) He always wanted to be, even though he didn't want to stay on in the show, he he always thought it'd be nice to come back and show that, you know, power corrupts and that's what's happened to... Because Stephen was always quite hot-headed. But the other thing is, Stephen was always an impressionist. In almost every story, there's a point where he'll do an impersonation of someone or he'll do an accent or... You know, like in the Christmas episode of Dalek's Master Plan, when Hartnell says, uh, why are you doing that strange accent? He goes, well, everyone else is doing it.
2: Yeah.
1: And he does a Liverpool accent because the scene's supposed to be set in Liverpool. The funny thing is nobody else in the cast is doing a decent Liverpool accent. But Peter Purvis does. Um, and then he gets in a story where somebody else is doing an impression of William Hartnell. So you think, I wonder if Stephen would have thought, the way to lead these people is I'll do, I'll do an impression of the doctor. But he's going to get it all wrong and become a despot.
2: William Hartnell is once again sidelined in the making of The Savages. Was there ever serious thought given to making Frederick Yeager Doctor Who, or was that just always meant to be a four-week one-off?
1: I don't think he was ever in the running, because by the time of Innes Lloyd coming in, he's already got his sights on Patrick Troughton. He's got a few other actors in mind um, on the sidelines, like Michael Horden. The thing about Michael Horden is he would have been the sort of type where it'd feel too close to William Hartnell he'd be playing it as a man who looks older than he really is Um, whereas Patrick Troughton was a radical departure the thing about the savages is if you've got Frederick Jaeger who's doing quite a good impression of William Hartnell to show if we were going to replace him would we want to go down this route and ultimately this gives them the chance to go no let's not do this let's go for something a lot braver um, but I think it's a, it's a lovely performance. I think Jackie Lane gets quite a lot to do as well. She gets a lot of, you know, she's she's gone from the comic relief in a way. In in the in Toymaker, she is there to fulfil Sidney Newman's function. She she needs to get into trouble and make mistakes. She's also there for exposition to remind the audience: this is what we were doing last week. This is what we're doing this week. This is what we're going to be doing for the next month. Um, and and unfortunately, I don't think it's particularly well written. It's it's rushed. In, from her point of view in The Savages yeah she's still screaming and reacting to things but she's getting to act quite a lot especially with the departure of Stephen that's heartbreaking the little you know, in the audio and the little bits of video that we've seen it's, it's that departure is so upsetting
0: well I must say young man I'm very proud of you Doctor I don't know if I... I know I know my boy well, go on you mustn't keep from waiting goodbye Doctor goodbye Stephen And good luck. We will see him again. Oh, who knows, my dear. In this strange complex of time and space, anything can happen. (laughs) Come along, let's go. We mustn't look back.
2: So after the hiccup of Celestial Toymaker and her character being poorly written, Jackie Lane has now shown in The Gunfighters, and she's shown in Savages, Serial BB, The War Machines. The production team must now know that Jackie Lane is the best thing they've had in a long time, (laughs) and she is clearly going to become the centerpiece of the show. And as William Hartnell's eased out the door, Jackie Lane is going to become co-lead. Am I right?
1: Um, for the end of June and the beginning of July 1966 you are absolutely right
2: oh, because except- part one is the end of June and part two is the beginning of July
1: <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah, again you've got a new broom coming in and they've inherited a lot of things they don't like but again one of them is the lead actor um, so they've been able to get rid of or, or allow Peter Purvis to go which again undermines William Hartnell's support structure Jackie Lane, as lovely as she is, is not as strong a personality as Maureen O'Brien was. I mean, she's still, she's been, you know, she, she auditioned to play Susan. She's been acting for quite a few years. She's been in the business as long as any of the other people who've been companions in this, but she's not really going to carry this show. And you get Innes Lloyd going, let's bring it up to date. Let's get two characters in. We can have a bit of a will they, won't they thing. They can come from different classes. And as, as soon as he brings them in, He's quite ruthless, and he just removes Dodo as soon as he possibly can. I think it's a shame. It would have been nice if they just had the adventure and then said, oh, Dodo's decided to stay and let her be a part of the story, but to just remove her so brutally just feels like, oh, yeah, we really can't be bothered. (laughs) We're we're looking at Ben and Polly now. Get rid of her as quick as possible.
2: I am not defending the decision to release her in episode two of a four-episode story in any way, shape, or form. The only justification that i can offer is they were not thinking of doctor who the way that we think of it i have yeah. on my shelf an individual dvd for every episode of the show from unearthly all the way through survival we look at doctor who in terms of rigid episodes to the extent that people believe these were made as one-off movies leading to the interminable complaints of oh these pertwee stories are two episodes too long no they're not they're serials they were looking at doctor who was one long ongoing journey they weren't saying oh we're getting rid of her in the middle of a four-part story they were just thinking of getting rid of her in the middle of a season they weren't thinking of it the way the way that we do but people to this day are upset that dodo does not get a departure scene and doesn't come back for a brief moment at the end of part four there you are my son it's nice to see you so well again and you my boy
0: away from that wretched tower. (laughs) Never felt better, Doctor. Sir Charles has been looking for you everywhere. We've got a message from him about Dodo. Oh, yes, I've been waiting around here for her. Where is she? I very nearly left without her. Left? Yes, uh, uh, to the airport, yes. She is well, I hope. She says she's feeling much better and she'd like to stay here in London and she sent you her love. Her love? Uh, There's gratitude for it. Take her all the way around the world through space and time. Come again, Doctor. uh, What? Oh, nothing, mind boy, nothing. Now, I, I think you both want to get away, don't you? Thank you, Polly, very much. Thank you, Ben. Bye. Goodbye. Run along. Enjoy
2: yourselves. You. Yes. <laughs> Which is a problem that is acknowledged in Faceless Ones a year <laughs> later when Ben and Polly leave at the end of episode two, but come back in a pre-filmed insert to say goodbye properly at the end of episode six.
1: When Ennis Lloyd, ruthless as ever, goes, I'm done with these. And I've got Fraser Hines now. Oh, and I might be able to get the daughter of Jack Watling in. So Bye.
2: <laughs> and they were released six weeks earlier because they were supposed to go up through Evil of the Daleks episode two, not Faceless One's episode two.
1: Yeah. it's um Again, it's it's a lot of... I think this is what TV production probably is like. It's just a lot of um, stop-start. It's treading water uh, and then rushing to get it all done and then having a bit of a pause and then you've got the same thing again. But this, I think... I mean, they, we, we've got... Nominally, we've got the smugglers as part of this production run as well. I love the Hartnell era, and I think The Smugglers is the story I care about the least. I've said before, I, I, you know, I would love to see every single story come back, but that would be the one I would be rushing to see. Um, probably, I, I would not be rushing to see. But series season three, because you've got this desperation to try and make a mark, try and do something different, try and make it more grown up, you've got a massive variety of story, uh, concepts from story to story. In the middle of it, you've got the Daleks' master plan, which I think arguably is the best production of Hartnell. Because you've got um, Douglas Camfield, you've got the jungle, which is the best jungle they've done up to this point. You've got um, spaceships, the best model shots they've done up to this point. The Daleks have never been scarier. Hartnell, when he's allowed to be on screen, is absolutely burning it up. He's fantastic. Uh, you've got Peter Purvis, effectively as co-lead, and he's really carrying the show beautifully. And then either side of it, you've got these completely odd stories all over the place, which start with a hangover from the previous administration and end with the future, which is the war machines. This is what Doctor Who is now going to look like forever. I think, you know, this push of like, oh, maybe we could do the Daleks as a, a colorized shortened adventure to appeal to a modern audience start with the war machines you'll have to cut virtually nothing out of it it looks amazing it sounds amazing the only thing that's a bit cute is them talking about a thing that might connect all of the computers in the world you're thinking what google
2: jack Raynor just released a novella as part of the decade series in which the war machines and quote-unquote computer day is a plot point so the war machines is still with us and I love The Smugglers because when I was in law school and my first year of law school, this shocks folks, even in the 1990s, I did not have a television set for my first year of law school. I figured I needed to study and I didn't want the distraction. So I went a year without a TV. There was a Doctor Who friend in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the next city over from where I went to law school, and he would come down to visit me once once or twice a year. And he gave me four off-air, audio recordings of the smugglers, and I listened to these during my first law school final exam session when I was very stressed out. You get a week off called reading week to reread your classes and prep for the exam. The final exam is a single four-hour block of time. Usually you're writing long-form essays without any notes in front of you. Very stressful time. Listening to the smugglers 25 minutes a night while going to sleep basically kept me calm and got me through law school finals. I love The Smugglers, but when you watch Doctor Who in sequence, The Smugglers has three problems. Before it is The War Machines, which is gorgeously shot and completely changes the show forever. After The Smugglers is Tenth Planet, which not only introduces the Cybermen, but changes the show forever by changing the lead. And then after Tenth Planet is Power of the Daleks, possibly the best, tightest Dalek story up to that point. So when you're watching the show in order doing the pilgrimage, The Smugglers is a sad little irrelevancy, and it becomes boring, and all you want to do is get to the very next episode. So I think The Smugglers is great if you watch it, as our friend Graham Burke says, jukebox style. Watch Doctor Who out of order. But when you watch it in sequence, it doesn't quite work. My favorite part about The Smugglers is there's a curse. It's (laughs) almost Treasure Island, and you have this cursed pirate treasure, and Captain Pike, as he's dying at the end of the story, passes the curse on to William Hartnell. In story terms, 24 hours later, the Tenth Planet, the Doctor actually dies. So Captain Avery's curse, which Captain Pike puts on the Doctor, carries over into the next story, which is made as part of Season 4 production block. And basically, at this point, William Hartnell is back as a three-week guest star, and Patrick Troughton is the new Doctor for all of Season 4 onwards. So William Hartnell did not go voluntarily, right? He was basically forced out against his will.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And it's unfortunate. We've got um some... Derek Martinez was a um, prestigious letter writer, so he, he wrote to a lot of the cast, and he, he sent... The, in the archives, there are still some letters that he sent to William Hartnell during the production of The Tenth Planet. Um, And, for for instance, he tells him, oh, we've got a great cast for you. And Hartnell is really excited with the cast, and he goes, oh, yeah... Um, Rob Beattie, I know him, he's, he's a very nice man, very very, very happy about that. And then when Hartnell genuinely falls ill, um, he's very apologetic, and uh, Derek Martinus um, sends him a lovely letter saying, I just hope you get well soon. We've got you know one more week to go. We'll look after you, and it's all... And it seems all very good-natured. I mean, Bill Hartnell in his letter is saying, oh, tell us uh, I went fishing, great fishing. And the, 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 there's some sort of camaraderie there. So he seems to understand... Yeah, it is about time. He's resigned to the fact. Um, So he is going unwillingly, but I think he recognizes it is time to go. And they do seem to be looking after him. They do seem to be taking care of him. But it must have still been very hard
2: for him. I'm very happy to hear that because in my own headcanon, remember that I grew up as a fan of isolation without really other fan friends for a long time. And I didn't have DWM. And I'm a fan of the 1980s. The internet exists, but I wouldn't join it until 1992. I always thought that Hartnell took off that penultimate week of Tenth Planet out of spite, but it turns out he was genuinely ill, and he actually wanted to be there.
1: He might have taken it out of spite, (laughs) 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 but certainly the documentation is playing it straight as if it's genuine. So let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt.
2: I certainly will. I we have covered Tenth Planet on this show already. That was one of the earlier novelizations. Roth Aiken from Gallifrey's Most Wanted was my guest for that episode. We have already covered The Myth Makers, which is the first of the season three novelizations to come out, but now we are up to 1986. Gunfighters is the first of the 1986 novelizations. 1986 in New York baseball history is one of the most important years ever, but I had drifted away from baseball in mid-1985, and I would not come back until the summer of 1987, So all this incredible baseball stuff is happening, and I missed every single pitch of the season. And when we come to Celestial Toymaker, the October 1986 release, I will talk about that in incredible detail. And if you're not a baseball fan, you can change that sentence to I will talk about it in excessive and nauseating (laughs) detail. But by 1986, I had gotten rid of my other fandoms, and I was all in. Doctor Who, and every new novelization release was an event. Most of Season 3 comes out in 1986, Jim, so as this season goes on, you are back next week to talk about the book of the Gunfighters, but after that, we also have Galaxy 4, which is television, Season 3, Book 104. We have The Savages, Book 108. We have Celestial Toymaker, which is Book 110. We have The Ark, which is Book 113. And then we have some older Hartnells coming out, Space Museum, Sensorites, Reign of Terror, Romans, all come out four in a row, books 116 to 119. And then The Massacre is book 121. So 1986, 1987 is sort of the golden age of season three and the golden age of Hartnell in the novelizations. And I was getting them all basically as they came out off the boat onto the American bookstore shelves fresh from the U.K., I am very excited to talk about these books and next week is the gunfighters. What is your favorite from out of all this run of stories in terms of episodes? What is your favorite from all this run of story out of books?
1: I think it's funny that you're talking about this with such enthusiasm and let's not forget what happened in 1985. Doctor Who was canceled forever.
2: <laughs> Which I it was canceled forever. Yeah.
1: And it's only when it's pointed out to them that Doctor Who Costs less than it brings in in revenue, and the revenue that is put aside from making Doctor Who pays for other programs. And what have you done? And suddenly, uh, Michael Grade and Jonathan Powell are forced to backtrack and make more Doctor Who, extremely unwillingly. But for this, the period that fans call the hiatus, you've suddenly got this really rich, amazing run of books. It's a bit like in 1990 when Doctor Who suddenly got good because it wasn't on again. So you've got The Gunfighters, one of the greatest, most um, insane books of all time. And you're going to finish with The Daleks Master Plan, a two-parter, epic, as good as it well, better than it was on TV. What an amazing run.
2: Jim, I'll see you next week. We're going to talk and sing our way through Doctor Who, The Gunfighters by Donald Cotton. See you next time, buddy. Bye.
0: We've now reached the middle of this light-hearted show About a book from nearly 40
1: years ago In the second half we'll try out some games at last In this episode of Doctor Who Literature Oh, God.
2: My thanks, as always, to Jim Sangster. And now we're going to talk about the book, but not the full book. That'll be next week. We talked a lot about the Mythmakers back in episode 97, as well as when I had Ian Potter on the show a few months ago. That I once again recommend Ian's Black Archive volume on that earlier TV story, Donald Kahn's first, and the first of his two scripts to be produced during season three of Doctor Who's 20th Century run. This is the second and final Kahn script, and following all the chaos with the changeover in production team from John Wiles and Donald Tosh to Ennis Lloyd and Jerry Davis, Cotton never came back. There is sadly, as of yet, no black archive published or announced for the Gunfighters, though as soon as there is one, its author is getting an invite onto this show. Though Ian's Mythmaker's Black Archive does tell us just who is the Tamsin to whom the Gunfighters novelization is dedicated. Donald Cotton did write a third novelization, later in the nineteen eighties, of a TV serial that he himself did not script, but let's put a pin on that one and come back to it in several months when we get there in target publication order. We already have a sense from episode 97, and from the Ian Potter episode, what kind of writer Cotton is and what style of humor goes into his novelizations. The Gunfighters is another long book, 146 pages of text, and it's superficially in a similar style to The Mythmakers. Told as a framing story, from a narrator who is not present on screen, and only faithful of the parent TV story, up to a point, episode three of four. The list of chapter titles is, again, excellent, but this time there are no paired chapter titles, so I will not read out the list for you in poetry form, because that's what I did last time. So I'll just talk about the chapter titles as they come up organically next week. Stephen King wrote, in his 1982 novella, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, that prison inmates love to have a library, because there are two types of books they cannot get enough of while incarcerated: the courtroom and the open range. So Andy Dufrane, the educated accountant who finds himself serving a life sentence in Maine's Shawshank prison, takes it upon himself to build up the prison library, then stocks it with plenty of Earl Stanley Gardner and Louis L'Amour, the early and mid 20th century pulp kings of, respectively. The courtroom and the open range. I've read each. I've also read Donald Cotton's The Myth Makers. By making Ned Buntline his narrator in this book, Cotton seems to be aiming for a particular type of pulp fiction prose. Except this is not the way that Earl Stanley Gardner and Louis L'Amour did it. Cotton overwrites to the point of near parody. If you read Gardner and L'Amour and other pulp writers of the era, James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice as another banger, they wrote lean prose, sometimes too lean, nothing at all like what Cotton is doing here. Short sentences, tons of period slang, is what you'll find in your American genre fiction writers. So, next week, we will take a deep dive into the text of the novelization of The Gunfighters. Today, Before I leave you, we're going to focus on the prologue, which takes place in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, in November 1887, as John Henry, Doc Holliday, is dying of tuberculosis at a sulfur hot springs sanatorium. Holliday's death occurred barefoot, and his last words are recorded as being, this is funny, believed to be a reference to the fact that he always expected to die with his boots on, i.e., in a gunfight. A nurse recorded his last words as he had asked for a shot of whiskey and was declined. Donald Cotton must have felt this was a historical injustice, because in the book, Holliday gets that final shot of whiskey on the last page before dying. The narrator of the prologue, and the rest of the book, is one Edward Judson Sr., a native New Yorker and son of a lawyer, who chose to be known professionally as Ned Buntline. Speaking of westerns, I find a lot of similarities to the novelization of the Gunfighters with the Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Both have Doctor Who connections. Patrick Troughton's grandson is in the third and creepiest segment of the Coen Brothers movie, paired up with Liam Neeson playing yet another in his trademark long line of Irish cowboys. Both have a similar tone, part musical, part black comedy, and part Twilight Zone style, elegy to the dead. The sixth segment of Buster Scruggs being, well, I won't spoil it, but let's just say that in real life, Ned Buntline died 15 months before Doc Holiday. So either Cotton didn't do his research, or fully intended that this novelization is narrated by Ned Buntline's ghost, who paid a visitation to the dying holiday possibly to ferry him to regions below. Textual proof for this theory is that Cotton literally uses the word visitation in this context in the prologue. Oh, and Buntline in the prologue also references the 1969 Sam Peckinpah film The Wild Bunch, which takes place in 1913, or 37 years after Buntline died in real life, and 36 years after the prologue. If you've never seen The Wild Bunch, but you're a sci-fi fan, you may know that the Warren Oates and Ben Johnson characters in that movie were recast as vampires in a couple of episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that Warren Oates, also in the early 60s, acted in two Twilight Zone episodes. And if you love American TV westerns, by the way, Buntline himself was a character in several episodes of the Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp TV series which ran for about 250 episodes, and which also featured an ongoing ballad narrating scene changes. The prologue is a lot of fun, with Cotton's characteristic wordplay, a pun on epistolary versus pistolary, and references to Gatling Guns and Judge Roy Bean, the original Hangin' Judge. The rest of the book depends on your tolerance for Cotton's writing style, and your demand for novelizations that faithfully follow their TV scripts. I will devote several sentences to each of the 23 chapters in the book, but I'm not going to do a deep dive into the prose, as I did that already for Cotton Smithmaker's novelization. And if I were to detail every bit of clever wordplay or every pun, next week's audio essay on the 23 chapters would be two hours long. So let's make this our logical stopping point, and next week we'll go chapter by chapter. But for this week, good night now. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Doctor Who Literature. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo, and this week's musical interlude, was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to Jim, my special guest this week. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Dr. Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Blue Sky and YouTube at Dr. Who Novels, that's D-R-Who Novels, and on email at Dr. Who Literature that's literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
0: That was chapter 101 of this book-based podcast. And here's to all the folk who said it wouldn't last. So grab the next volume, we've still got a few. They'll be thumbs up for the literature of Doctor Who. Direction Point! Direction
1: Point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.